Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello. A quick message to let you know that this week's books podcast includes instances of offensive language. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week we're looking at stories and who owns them. John Boyne takes ambition in the literary world to almost parodic levels in A Ladder to the Sky. And Sarah Waters describes the agonies and, if you're very lucky, the ecstasies of seeing your beloved story reborn on screen as the film of her book, The Little Stranger, arrives in cinemas. But first... The winner of the Forward Prize for Best Collection 2018 is Dana Smith. It's autumn. Exciting time, known by the French as La Rentrée, The Return. Here in England, we have the Booker Shortlist and the Forward Poetry Prizes. I'm here today in the studio with Sean Kane. Sean, I know you are pretty excited about the Booker Dozen, as we know them, the 13 books on the long list. What do you make of this shortlist? Well, um, my verdict is a sort of impossibility in that I don't think the judges could have ever done anything that would have made me really, really happy. Because <laughs> um, you have 13 books on this year's long list and then it's always whistled down to six on the short list. Can you just say why you're excited about the 13? Well, it was a bit of a exciting one because of the new elements to it. So first of all, there was a thriller, which... Personally, the book itself, Snap, by Belinda Bow, wasn't for me, but I was very glad to see it there just because it shook things up a little bit. Also, the presence of the first ever graphic novel to be um, long-listed for the prize, which is Sabrina by Nick Dranasso, which I loved. So that was very exciting. And also the presence of how many young writers. I, your age. Yeah, my age. <laughs> There's a lot of people, uh, sort of, you know, late 20s, early 30s, often for their first book, perhaps their second. There were five on this year's long list. So five out of 13 is like pretty hefty presence for young people. And so that was really, really exciting for me. So how many of them have actually survived the cut? One. <laughs> so one of the six. And uh, I have to have my little caveat here. Um, a very close friend of mine, Daisy Johnson, is... Uh, shortlisted youngest ever author shortlisted for the man booker prize How old is she? she's 27 she's a month younger almost exactly a month younger than eleanor catton who won the prize uh, in 2013 
uh, for her novel The Luminaries. Eleanor was 27 when she was shortlisted and then was 28 when she won. And Daisy will still be 27 if she wins in October. Um, so her birthday's on 31st of October, so she will win at two weeks. How before. likely do you think she is to win? I mean, as a friend, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go, yes, absolutely, 100% she's going to win. I actually really, really loved her novel, um, all nepotism aside. Uh, I think uh, her novel, is uh, Everything Under, is absolutely beautiful. She's just got such a unique prose style. It sort of tumbles out, but it also feels very effortless. And I think just the inventiveness as well of, of what she's doing, sort of reimagining Oedipal myth in, in modern Britain is um, fabulous and such a sort of ambitious and accomplished book for someone who's 27 I think that's sort of we should hold these books up and I know some people will be cynical about her age and I also understand why people don't want to put too much emphasis on her age because it should be about the achievement itself rather than at which point in your life that you do it but she should be uh, absolutely praised and held up for her ambition she's her age so she's one of you know the the great thing about this list is you can cut it in many different ways Mm. you say well she's you know the only under 30 year old who's who has survived the cut but there are two americans and a canadian on this list yes and then three uh, people from the uk three people well one one is irish mm-hmm. so anna burns is irish yeah northern irish but uh, northern irish yes and so and that's interesting as well because there were three irish writers on the list and and anna burns is the only one to survive there and we've lost sally rooney yeah. which is you know it's that everybody is talking about sally rooney's normal people and off she goes Donald Ryan as well well I mean this is the thing so basically when I said at the start that we're sort of in an impossible situation I'm excited about what is on this year's shortlist and I'm very disappointed about what isn't there they couldn't have had a 13 book shortlist that's not how these things work Um, but I do think it's really interesting so having looked at how these books have been selling all 13 books on the long list in terms of the bestsellers, the bestseller by far is Belinda Bauer's Snap, which maybe is to be expected. It is a genre book. It is a thriller. Commercial uh, crime fiction does sell very, very well. It also happens to be out in paperback. So it has sold, I think, roughly around about 53,000 uh, copies just in paperback alone, let alone hardcover before that. Then you've got Michael on Dutchie's Warlight. Michael on Dutchie, of course, is a very well-known author. Um, he's been he's knocked got, off. He has been knocked off. But Sally Rooney's Normal People, I think, has sold about 15,000 copies in the last three weeks, which is pretty fantastic in hardcover. And then Nick Dranazno's Sabrina, which is like the the sort of surprise pick, I think, the truly surprising pick on this year's long list. So I think a lot of people went out and bought it to sort of just see what, what it was doing. And all these books aren't on the shortlist. These are all the bestsellers. So I think you have to sort of look at this shortlist and actually ask, what is this prize doing in that it does feel to me like there has there is a deliberate effort involved in the curation here to really drive readers towards a particular book. Not a sort of particular book on the shortlist, but I'm sort of saying a particular book that perhaps people weren't already buying. And I don't know if sales are actually taken into account by the judges or whether they really do count the opinions of the reading public when they're curating the shortlist but I do find it hugely interesting that basically the five best-selling books on this year's long list none of them are on the shortlist. My understanding is that sales are not taken into account but that it is a prize that hopes to stimulate the industry the book selling industry. And I do have to like I have to applaud it for that and sort of say it is great to, to try and drive people to books that perhaps they don't want to try or and as we can actually see with the numbers people aren't trying these books that are on the shortlist 
So let's um, let's just look at a few of them. I'm mean, Anna Burns Milkman. Mm. It's very chewy, isn't it? Yes. So I personally, if you're going to basically a lot of the books on this year's shortlist are based around themes. There's a lot of very contemporary themes. So particularly here with Anna Burns uh, Milkman, it looks at basically a very extremely troubling relationship between an 18 year old girl in Northern Ireland during the Troubles who starts being harassed by an older milkman. Well, um, he's not, a, he's a paramilitary who's called the milkman. Oh, yes. Um, but he's, he, he doesn't just harass her, he isolates her, he threatens to kill her boyfriend if she doesn't break up with him. It's all told from her voice and her voice is the voice is very lyrical it's very it's it's very chewy as you say if we were to say and i don't think this is the case but if we were to say right sally rooney's normal people which also looks at gender and it looks at issues around power dynamics in relationships and you have milkman as well which is the better book I'd honestly pick up the Sally Rooney and say this is the better book because you pick it, it up. But is it the better book? That's I'd, not necessarily the same thing. No, but uh, but it's it's also equally objective. And I would personally say that Sally Rooney is the better book in that it is so succinct and the prose is so clean and clear, and it doesn't need the lyricism and the sort of tumbling sentences that go on for ages and the quirks of the voice that exist in Milkman because I just found it very very tiring. I didn't find it particularly attractive. It wasn't a, a kind of a voice that I wanted to keep reading. And while I get that not all books should be like that, I do feel like books should be praised and books should be held up as successes for doing things without show and without flash. And interesting, the other book, the other extreme almost, is the Essie Dugian Washington Black. Mm which has this this very familiar very very measured it's a slave narrative it has but it's a it feels very easy it's a voice we know yes <laughs> the absolutely the other, very very easy it's a smooth read although mm. although it covers a lot of big history it, it's it's very thoughtful mm. it's the sort of slip down easily sort of end of it yeah and i did i i actually feel like a lot of the characters in washington black she's done a fantastic job in crafting the characters in it i'm not a massive fan of historical fiction but i did enjoy what i've read so far of washington black that was um, the one i i tipped right at the long list <laughs> yes I'm, you did i'm very happy that it's got through to the shortlist stage because you're always a bit worried when you tip something that it's going to damn it forever so, well i've anyway. been tipping rooney for weeks and yeah she's you're not be, on the bloody yeah, shortlist you're <laughs> <the> curse. <laughs> i cursed it <laughs> so so the the novel that I hadn't read at longlisting stage was Robin Robertson's The Long Take, mm. which is is really interesting. I mean, it's it's is it a novel or is it a long poem? I am a bit undecided. It's about a an ex serviceman who's kind of been demobbed, Canadian serviceman who's come out of the war, and he's arrived. He arrives in New York, and it's it's about the sort of post war culture clashing with this population of drifters who almost he's almost like he's drifted out of a 1930s existentialist novel and suddenly he's in 1950s New York and McCarthy's getting going and the, and the Los Angeles film industry is getting going and he doesn't know what to make of the modern world and it's as Robin Robertson actually cites Walter Friedlander who is a professor at Berkeley, Berkeley who says um, at last German expressionism meets the American dream and it, you kind of think that's what that's what he's aiming to do with this novel stroke epic poem. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Even that, the voice in The Long Take, I think is still more readable and more enjoyable 
and I think a greater achievement than Milkman. And I don't mind novel in verse. I don't sort of think it, it doesn't necessarily stretch the borders of, of form too much for me. Like if we're going to say that this is a prize for novels, I don't think novels in verse are necessarily, you know, too crazy, too wild for that. And I, I've certainly liked what I read in the long take, but it, it's the sort of thing that I think that that is actually an example of a sort of prose style that is far more interesting and I think a greater achievement than Milkman. It sounds like I'm ragging on Milkman a lot, but yeah, I, I just, I, I really... a bit tough on Milkman. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm very surprised it's there. So yeah. let's move on then, um, on to Rachel Kushner, another of the Americans, yes. The Mars Room. I really liked The Mars Room. I think that it's, it's a genuinely new take on a lot of things around uh, sex work and what modern poverty looks like in America, what the justice system is doing to individuals in America. I think Kushner's just a very cool author and she just has a lot of heft, even though her, her books are very, very readable. I really like her. Quite uh, pleased she's there. The, the sentences are, are quite short. It's short and yeah, snappy. Yeah, she's very and... punchy and she doesn't mess around with ugliness either. She doesn't try to hide. Like, you know, some of the, the, the content of this book is quite confronting, but I thought it was a really good novel. So uh, the one we haven't mentioned so far is Richard Powers, The Overstory. Mm. Yes, when they were announcing the shortlist, uh, there was a sort of a little preamble by the chair of judges and then he made reference to one of the books being really long and I was like, okay, Richard Powers is on the heck. <laughs> it's, it's a stonker, this book. It's huge. A redwood of a, of a, of a novel, as mm. someone has described it. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot about trees in it, so that's probably pretty good. <laughs> um I mean, I, I've only I've only dipped into this just because it was the longest. So you know, I'm sorry, everyone. I need to spread my reading. <laughs> <laughs> nine. It's got nine characters. It covers a yeah. huge time span. It's sort of eco fable, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I quite like the, the the sort of it's it's structured around almost the structure of a tree. There's there's a part called roots and there's a part called stem and you know it, it's it's really. I mean, Richard Powers is sort of famously an environmentalist and. All of his characters, he's got this big cast of characters and it sort of looks at multiple generations of people, but all of them are variously invested in ecology and uh, is sort of particularly centred around uh, the saving of some, uh, some, some virgin acres in this uh, forest in Iowa, I think. So I'm kind of pleased by... It's funny, it's, it's almost like you expect certain books to be on these kind of prize long lists. So I sort of was thinking, oh, Andachi will be there just because he's so well-known and he's so big and he's had a very big year this year because English Patient was chosen as the Booker of Bookers this year and has won the Booker before, you know, he'll probably be there. And so in the absence of Andachi, Richard Powers is almost like my big stately American big American novel you know his presence there almost balances things out now that's not to say that I'll necessarily like the overstory when I get into it but it's almost like an understandable presence to me but maybe that's a problem because I'm expecting it to be there because these books are so often up for these prizes and and, and whether they should be or not is debatable well often in the end even with these sort of racy slightly exciting long lists and short lists it's the big hitter the that will blue win. blood that comes through. and then everyone remembers that and no one ever remembers the short so <laughs> what's your tip um do you know what? i'm gonna go for daisy let's do it let's give 27 year olds fifty thousand pounds you know 
Let's not give it to Richard Powers. I've got nothing against Richard Powers, but let's give my mate Daisy 50,000 pounds so she can take me out for a drink. You're on. (laughs) So though Robin Robertson appears on the Booker list as a debut novelist, he's actually a very successful poet who's won all three categories of the Forward Prizes. That's for single poem, for first collection and for collection of the year. The latest batch were awarded this week at London's Royal Festival Hall. It wasn't that long ago that the organisers caused a storm by hiring in actors to read the shortlisted entries on the basis that poets didn't read well enough to command a big stage. How things change. Danes Smith took the top prize for an explosive second collection exploring the experience of being black, gender neutral and HIV positive in the American Midwest. Here they are, their pronoun of choice, performing a poem from Don't Call Us Dead. Let's make a movie called Dinosaurs in the Hood. Jurassic Park meets Friday meets The Pursuit of Happiness. There should be a scene where a little boy is on the bus playing with a toy dinosaur, then looks out the window and sees a T-Rex. Because there has to be a T-Rex. Duh! It's a dinosaur movie. What the shit did you think was going to happen? Ugh. Don't, uh, don't let Tarantino direct this. In his version, the boy plays with a gun. The metaphor being black boys toy with their own lives, the spinning image of his father, the foreshadow to his end. Fuck that. The kid is playing with the plastic triceratops or brontosaurus, and this is his proof of magic or God or Santa or some weird freaky lizard Jesus Saint Nick shit. I don't know. I want a scene where a cop car gets pooped on by a pterodactyl. I want a scene where a corner store turns into a battleground, but please don't let the Wayans brothers in this movie. I don't want any racist shit about Asian people or overused pan-Latino stereotypes. This is a movie about a neighborhood of royal folks, the children of slaves and immigrants and addicts and exiles saving their town from real-ass dinosaurs. I don't want some cheesy yet progressive sexy Vietnamese hot dude hero with some funny yet strong black girl buddy cop film. This is not a vehicle for Will Smith and Sofia Vergara. I want grandmas, real ass grandmas on the front porch, taking out raptors with the guns they hid in the walls and under mattresses. I want Cecily Tyson to make a speech, maybe two. I want some of those little spitty, screamy dinosaur things to go I want Viola Davis to save the town in the last scene with a black fist afro pick through the last dinosaur's long scale neck and this can't be a black movie. No, this movie can't be dismissed because of its cast or its audience. This movie can't be a metaphor for black people and extinction. This movie can't be about race. This movie can't cause black people pain or be about black pain. This movie can't be about a long history of having a long history with hurt. This movie can't be about race. Nobody can say nigga in this movie who can't say it to my face in public. No chicken jokes in this movie. No bullet holes 
and the heroes and nobody kills the black boy and nobody kills the black boy and nobody kills the black boy for once. Nobody kills that black boy besides. The only reason I want to make this is for the first scene anyway. The little black boy on the bus with his toy dinosaur, his eyes wide and endless, his dreams possible and pulsing and right, right. Thank you. The amazing Danes Smith. Not for nothing did they describe themselves that night as feeling like energy wrapped in skin. Thanks to the Southbank Centre for that fabulous recording. Now, many of Sarah Waters' novels, such as Fingersmith or Tipping the Velvet, have been explorations of lesbian life. The Little Stranger was different. It's a gothic novel with a male narrator that focuses on class in post-war Britain rather than sexuality. It's now been made into a film by Lenny Abrahamson. Sean asked Sarah to go back to basics. How much of a departure was the novel from her earlier work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it sort of was a departure and it wasn't. I mean, it clearly was for... There were no gay characters in it. It was the first time I'd had a, had a significant male character, well, a male narrator as well. So I knew that that was new territory for me. I knew, I, I knew that it might slightly disappoint some of my lesbian fans, which I think the book did, really, some of them. But... For me, it was very much a continuation of interests I'd, I'd already had. You know, lots of my books, most of my books really have a, have a kind of gothic element to them. Um, I mean, this is a bit different. In the, the Little Stranger is a bit different in that it has an actively supernatural element to it. But, you know, the, the kind of the large house, which is a sort of repository of secrets, you know, I kind of used before in Fingersmith, Infinity of the Women's Prison, you know, this, this structure that's full of spaces, some of which are forbidden, uh, some of which allow you to enact kind of transgressive desires. They're at the heart of my fiction, really. So I felt very comfortable with The Little Stranger. In fact, it really came to life for me as a project when I realised I could write it as a haunted house story, I think, because I'd grown up reading ghost stories and watching horror films and just felt very at home with the genre and saw it as an opportunity to really enjoy the genre and to um, make the most of it, relish it. So, I mean, you mentioned ghost stories and it's really interesting because as far as I understand it, this didn't actually necessarily start as a ghost story. You sort of started with a very different motivation, which was looking at the rise of socialism in the UK. Well, I was interested in what was happening in post-war Britain, you know, the class mm. changes. So I'd written my previous book, The Night Watch, which was set during and just after the Second World War. And I'd really concentrated mainly on gender and sexuality for that. It's about the sort of the, the strange liberations that people were able to find in wartime and then a slight closing down of possibility that came with the return to peace. But 
in researching that book, you know, it's impossible to research the 1940s and not come across class because it was such a hot topic at the time. Mm. And of course, coming out of the war, you know, people voting voting out Churchill, voting in the socialist government, there was this great sense of forward movement, Britain becoming a fairer, more democratic place, which for lots of people was very exciting. And for other people, perhaps especially the landed gentry, you know, who had more of a stake in, in the old fashioned world and needed servants and things, it was, it made the world a very unsafe and dejecting and um, I think quite menacing place. So I was interested in all of that. But no, didn't plan to write a ghost story at first. In fact, I'd, I was drawn to a novel called The Franchise Affair by Josephine Tay, oh, yeah. which is a fascinating and really quite horrid novel uh, in the sense that it's got this, it's all about this working class girl called Betty who disappears for a while and claims to have been abducted by two two middle class women. And the story is about the unfolding of this case and Ultimately, I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, but, you know, <laughs> kind of Betty is revealed as this sort of nasty little minx, really, who gets her comeuppance. And it's really um, unpleasant. The way it talks about class is extremely unpleasant. And there are other novelists of the time, like Angela Thurkel, who's, you know, we think of as a light social, writing light social comedies. But actually, there's a, there's a nastiness to the way she talks about working class people and those post-war changes that really interested me so I'd begun to want to write a novel that would address those sorts of issues wasn't quite sure thought could I could I kind of rewrite the franchise affair that seemed quite appealing you know tell it from Betty's point of view Mm. more sympathetically and then I just began to think hang on maybe I could tell this as a haunted house novel and that just immediately made me excited partly because it meant I could really go for the genre and enjoy it Um, but also it just seemed to me that a haunted house was quite a good way of capturing the the, this particular historical moment you know when Britain itself almost felt like this kind of creaky old haunted house that was resisting the pull into modernity and was being haunted by the relics of the past and the turmoil of the present and you know the uncertainty of the future it was all sort of there so it just produced the novel very naturally after that yeah Mm. Betty is still has a presence Betty's still there there. yeah but just in a much more reduced level than I imagined at the start because Dr Faraday then came in I wanted him at the start to be this rather in sort of transparent narrator you know lots of classic ghost ghost stories have a have a figure a bit like um Dr Faraday a sort of he's slightly on the outside of the action he's sympathetic a bit bewildered and really kind of you know gives this sort of uh, yeah this account of a decline that he's not really a part of and doesn't understand and I saw Dr Faraday as playing that kind of role telling us about this family's awful decline and not understanding it but then I became interested in him and what Mm. might be going on for him and I, I gave him this complicated class background of his own so his mother has actually been a servant at the big house hundreds hall that's now in decline and he started as a working class boy who was you know, got scholarships and become a become a doctor. So he has an uneasy relationship with his own past, not quite accepted by the gentry class as one of them, and has this kind of odd love-hate relationship with Hundreds Hall and what it represents. So he both wants it and hates it, and it just seemed full of wonderful narrative potential. So poor Betty then ended up... I mean, she's still there, and she's got a quite quite a nice role in lots of ways but she's uh, a much smaller character than I intended her to be. She's fabulous in the film. She's I loved her every time she's on screen. Liv Hill <laughs> plays her, and she's still 
really young Liv I think she went back you know to finish off her A-levels or something oh, when wow. they finished filming and she's such a great actress yeah. and she really yeah she brings a lot to that role actually <laughs> so that ambiguity that exists in, in Faraday in that you see him really admiring Hundreds Hall and, and the family the heirs that live there but he also hates them because he's not part of them and it's so interesting that he's a doctor I mean for one in the film there's a mention of the the newly formed mm. NHS um, and he's debating with a colleague about that we sort of come in halfway through that conversation but also because as a doctor he's a very respected he's a very respected figure in society but he is still he still has to work and so he's not part of this um, leisure class yeah exactly yeah. and it's such an ambiguous novel in many ways I mean when we're talking about a ghost story there's this plot thread throughout that it's possible that this this house is being haunted by a dead child one of the heir's children but then it becomes much more twisted than that doesn't it it sort of starts looking at perhaps whether there's some sort of manifestation of Faraday himself prompting violence in the house and I it's, I sort of see that like an ambiguous novel is something that is something that appeals to a lot of readers even though it might frustrate some because some people just want answers mm -hmm. you know but it also strikes me that an ambiguous film is something that's perhaps even more hard to sell to an audience yes I think you're right I mean yeah I mean there's a lot there I mean I wanted him to be a doctor because doctors are very mobile characters mm. I needed a reason for him to keep going to the hall basically you know and he, he, he is in into the hall is that he goes there to treat Betty with this kind of sham complaint and then ends up treating Roderick for, for his the leg that's been injured during the war and then gradually sort of becomes this confidant to the family, you know. And doctors are great because they're incredibly, dis they have to be incredibly dispassionate, mm. but they're also, you know, they have intimate knowledge about us. So I really liked that sense that he has this very logical, rational surface, but that he gets involved with the family in much more sort of intricate ways. And of course, he himself has this unconscious side to him that is really, I guess, the heart of all, all the troubles. But I certainly, as you say, I wanted to keep things a bit ambiguous, which you can do in a novel. I, want, you know, I, was, I was interested in this as a story about poltergeists rather than about ghosts, you mm. know, poltergeists being distinct from ghosts as being a sort of bundle of energy acting out distress and anger and all those, all those messy feelings that we, we find hard to admit rationally, you know, can burst out. This was, this was the idea I had. I really liked that. And to a certain extent, I wanted the novel to be a kind of, well, whose poltergeist is it? You know, is it Betty the Servant Maid, a kind of classic poltergeist focus? Is it Caroline, who's this rather frustrated woman who's been brought back to look after the house and the family? She doesn't really want to be there. You know, is it Roderick, who's been kind of emasculated by his wartime injury and feels... Uh, you know, he's struggling to maintain his status and his role as head of the household. So they're all unhappy and, and traumatised in one way or another. But yeah, gradually I wanted it to emerge that the, that the poltergeist or whatever the problem is has, has a rather different source to that. And it's you're right about a film. I, that was one of the conversations I had with Lucinda Coxon, the, the scriptwriter, you know, how you could capture that ambiguity and without frustrating an audience you didn't want an audience to leave kind of just scratching their heads and not taking anything else away from a film but but bafflement you know other choices that had to be made were which of the spooky scenes could you show on screen because in the, in the novel Dr Faraday himself never really experiences anything supernatural it's all reported to him by other people and he reports it to us but that would have meant for a lot of flashback scenes you know mm. so there's Roderick has a very spooky experience early in the novel 
with a shaving mirror that kind of moves by itself and that couldn't go into the film unfortunately because it would just it was just kind of not right for the for the narrative line of the movie and i think actually in the end lenny the director and lucinda the scriptwriter did just a brilliant job of retaining enough ambiguity to make the film feel complex and subtle and thought provoking you know without feeling frustrating without feeling like it sort of missed its mark and certainly the final image in the film which is much more explicit really than than any resolution in the novel um i think it's just so spot on though it just mm. absolutely gets that the novel um is very poignant it's kind of more poignant really than i'd guessed it could be and i really i really felt that when i was watching it myself i was you know it's a story about people being stuck unable to evolve you know here they all are in this house including dr faraday in a country that's changing at a fast pace around them but they're you know the, the heirs family wanting to keep alive this kind of lost world that's that's just crumbling away faraday is enthralled to that world even even though he thinks he isn't really and um they're just kind of stuck there and this this is the final image of this, this endless kind of playing out of of a sort of unhappy moment in the life of the characters in the life of the film and um, I thought that was just brilliantly done mm. I mean it seems to me that, I mean just based on numbers I mean so many of your books have been adapted in various ways I mean even with the uh, Fingersmith that's been adapted I think for TV for theatre and for mm. film now with uh, The Handmaiden mm -hmm. but are you someone that is quite happy for someone to adapt your novels in that you're quite happy to see what emerges and it's distinct from what you had originally produced? Yeah, very much. In fact, I mean, I've, I've liked all the adaptations and I've really loved the pro, you know, seeing the seeing it happen, seeing mm. what choices a scriptwriter has to make, you know, what can work in a novel and what can't quite work on a film, the characters that have to go because there isn't room for them in a TV program or, or a film. So I've just enjoyed really handing them over to somebody else. I mean, once I know, you know, I have to know beforehand that they're not going to muck around with the novel, not sort of do damage to the novel or to my intentions with the novel. But actually, I mean, I think in a way the adaptations I've enjoyed the most have been the ones like, I mean, you mentioned The Handmaiden, which was just a glorious mm. treat, I thought, of a film and is so true to the novel and yet does its own thing as well you know it's, it's very much the director park chan works own film own vision and i've really enjoyed it when adaptations have done that when they've used the book but turned the book into something of their own and i think the little stranger does that too it's very much lenny's film and lucinda's film even while it's still incredibly faithful to the novel mm. Working with Lenny, um, I was listening to a, an old interview with him recently, actually, just uh, after Room came out, which is Emma Donoghue's novel. And he said how someone recommended the novel to him and he went and read it and then loved it so much. He then went and wrote a 10 page letter to her really? about like why he loved it and why he should be the one to direct it. I think at that point he actually didn't know that there was a screenplay floating around, but he really wanted to be involved in whatever was going to be done with this novel. And... Uh, Emma Donoghue said it struck her that he really got her novel. So what was it like for you working with Lenny? Because he, just um, having watched a few of his films, um, I'm thinking of uh, Frank, which is based on a John Ronson mm -hmm. news article, but also Room. He's a man that works very well with written content and turning it into a film, but mm. respecting the material. Yes, and, you know, I actually, I, I had a very similar experience to Emma. I was really, really impressed when I first 
had contact with Lenny by how much, how much, how well he knew the Little Stranger, the novel. You know, he was talking to me. He could like repeat whole sections <laughs> of it to me. Um, but also how he got it. I mean, that's mm. what Emma said, isn't it? You know, how he just so clearly got what I was getting at because it's a novel that it is a bit ambiguous, and some readers have. I've have come away thinking, oh, hang on a minute, what, what, you know, what, where was that, what was going on there, and what is the little stranger, and um, which to a certain extent makes me feel like I must have failed as a writer, you know. But then when somebody comes along who really does get it, it's very, very satisfying, and, and I, I definitely had that feeling with Lenny, and also I'd seen some of his sh- short films at that point and knew he was a really, really interesting director. So I just felt, actually, I just felt incredibly flattered that he'd had this response to the book and seen seen things in it that he really wanted to bring to life. It was very exciting. You know, that somebody of his of his ability, his talents and his stature was ready to devote time and uh, and thought and emotion to the book was just really wonderful. So it was a great experience working with him. I mean, I've never, with my adaptations, I've never been what you'd call creatively involved, but I've certainly usually been very included in the, in the process. I like to see drafts of the script and it was particularly interesting with The Little Stranger because there are these ambiguities and I know that Lenny and Lucinda between them tried out slightly different endings. Oh, really? Yeah, slightly different strategies. There was, And it was interesting being part of, or party to that conversation about what, you know, what, what would best, what would be the best strategy to kind of get what they wanted to get. That was very interesting. So it was, yeah, it was very rewarding experience and as yeah. far as i understand it there's a, the, the paying guest is still in the works is that right that there's an adaptation coming for that yes i mean you never know with adaptations if they're going to come off or not but it yeah it looks like this is going to happen um, for tv mm. i mean the paying guest is, is much more suited to tv it's a it's slightly more episodic there was something about the little stranger i think that suited a, you know a, a, that intense viewing experience but yeah touch wood the, the paying guests will happen too Sarah Waters speaking there with Sean Kane. The Little Stranger, the novel that is, is published in paperback by Virago and the film is out in the UK now. Do you love anime, gaming, movies and discovering how your favourite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Last year, 
The Guardian tracked all the deaths of young people due to knife crime and explored the themes that emerged in an award-winning series called Beyond the Blade. Why are they carrying a knife in an area where they know people but they feel that they have to acquit themselves from other people? We saw many people suffering, but we also saw many fighting back. We've got to start looking at how we talk and how we generalise and how we categorise just ordinary people that are poorer than other people or people who don't have as much as other people. For this new series, journalists from The Guardian travelled to Bristol, Birmingham and Croydon in South London to listen to some of those people. Society tends to look down at young people once they've made a wrong choice and what we're saying by that is that we're writing them off. And rather than report on their conversations, we let them speak for themselves. When I come out of jail, I'd never been praised before I'd turned my life around. And when I come out and got praised for the work that I was doing, I thrived. That gap needs to be built up a, a bit sooner, you know? As opposed to... Yeah, just waiting to hear from hear from me because I'm waiting to hear from the next generation as well. So we're all waiting and there's no like action happening, happening, happening. If families are fractured, that has an impact on a young person. If a father and a mother get divorced, that has an impact on our young people. And I think the only way they know how to make people sit up and say, listen, there's a real problem going on here, is by violence. To listen to all three episodes, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcast. Or subscribe by searching Beyond the Blade on your favourite podcast app. Good artists copy and great artists steal. So said Picasso, and he should know. It's a perennial point of discussion for writers too, and John Boyne explores it in his latest novel, A Ladder to the Sky. It follows the writing life of Maurice Swift, a young writer so obsessed with being remembered as being great that he will do anything, really anything, to lay claim to a new book. This is a novel about ambition, about legacy, throwing in some very funny observations of literary pretensions. Morris himself says in the book, writers can be merciless. So Sean asked John, did he think he'd been merciless in his depiction of the writing world? Well, it's, it's, it's not negative, though, either. I no. Because, you know, in, in, you know I, I've been publishing books for almost 20 years. And actually, I, you know, I, I love the publishing industry and I think it's a very good industry. So it's not so much a satire on that as on the, the chap himself, you know, on Morris, on somebody who has a degree of talent but no imagination. So cannot think up his own stories and the things that any of us might do really to get ahead and to succeed in life. And he's so obsessed with being a novelist, but clearly he doesn't have... He has the drive to be a novelist, but he doesn't have the imagination to really fuel that. So he finds all sorts of ways to get around this and uh, pilfer other people's ideas and their stories. What is that that line for you between copying mm. and stealing? Well, firstly, with, with Morris, it's, it's not just the drive to be a novelist. It's the drive to be a famous novelist, which is sometimes the difference when it comes to, to writers and to new writers. Which of those two, two things is the most important to you and the line between it for me well 
I mean, there is that question in the book about literary ownership, that if you know, if you and I are sitting down and you tell me a story and you've just told me it, you know, does it still belong to you? Does it belong to me? Does it belong to the first person to write it down? Uh, it's it's very hard to know. I think it's on almost on a case by case basis. In this novel, though, what Morris is doing is he's actually manipulating people for their stories. So he's going about it in a very calculated way, which is different than, as I say, than you just say, telling me a story that I might sort of adapt then or, or use as the beginning of something. So there's the difference there in anything, whether we do it to manipulate people or whether we do it just out of just basic honesty. And do you agree with Morris's assessment that writers are merciless? Well, I think they can be at times. I mean, we are all, you know, we're all fighting for readers, I suppose. <laughs> and we're all fighting to write, you know, the very best book that we can write at any time. But I think for the most part, the best writers are those who sort of live, you know, generally quiet lives and are just at home writing their books and perhaps not worrying too much about what happens after publication because so much of that is in the lap of the gods you know it's sometimes you get lucky with a book and sometimes you don't and it's not always about the book itself it's one will just take off in the way another one doesn't but um, we should be merciless with our stories and with our writing and with our sentences I think you know and trying to write the very best thing we can do every time. And in terms of this line between uh, stealing, copying, pure invention. Is it something that's come up in your career very much? Have you ever had moments where someone's told you a fabulous story or perhaps just sort of told you an anecdote that in passing, not really thinking that you might be using it and you're sort of right a part of your mind switches on going, that's fabulous, I really use that in this way? It probably has. You know, like any other writer, I suppose, I always have a notebook with me and if I hear something, if something happens, I'll scribble it down and maybe 99 out of 100 of those won't go anywhere, but one will. But it, I, I don't think I've ever heard something and felt I'm going to take that deliberately in that way. The only difference, I suppose, would be that in the early part of my career, because I wrote a lot of historically based novels then, I was taking other people's stories and adapting them. Uh, you know, I wrote a novel about Dr. Crippen, a novel about Captain Bly. So I was taking stories that existed in the world and turning them into fiction in some way. Or in the case of the, the, the novel about Bly, uh, about the bounty, really taking a, a story that we'd seen so many times on movies and trying to tell the truthful story, but in a novel, which is a weird way to do it, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm sure people have told me things that have uh, inspired a story or that have inspired a character or a scene in a book. But I've never felt I've done it in any sort of malevolent way. No. And no one's ever laid claim ownership no, to it afterwards. No, not so far. <laughs> I mean, it, there's a particular uh, book that Morris writes, which is the first one, Two Germans, which he very blatantly takes a story that is told to him by a sort of more senior and elderly author called Eric um, about his youth. And all throughout the book, Morris justifies this by when he's called out on it that he always talks about, well, I changed certain things and... Later on in the novel, he sort of more overtly says that he was told this, but he was never told that he couldn't mm -hmm. use it. Do you think that there is anything that really is off limits to writers that they should ever take into account the personal mm. feelings of others? Um, it's possible that there are some. I, I think in the case of Morris and Eric in this book, one thing I tried to do as the novel progressed, uh, as you point out, is that every time he is challenged on it, I kind of tried to play devil's advocate a little bit to, to kind of ask that question of myself as a writer and to ask the reader, because the reader at that point is probably going to look at Morris in a very negative way. So I'm trying to have him debate people at times 
answering that question, saying, but look, what did I actually do wrong here? A guy told me a story. He'd never written it himself. He didn't say it was, you know, off the record. And I have changed things. I have turned, I have used a basic idea and turned it into a novel. Is that so bad? I, I Only a couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody on Twitter, in fact, um, criticized me for taking an inspiration, I suppose, shall we say, for this book from my own life mm. and turning it into a novel. But isn't that what novelists have been doing since it all started? Mm. That we take something, you know, look at Philip Roth, you know, who, who spent his whole career writing novels based generally on people he knew and his own experiences as a writer. I, I think it comes down to whether you're doing it, you, do, you don't want to use novels as a, a form of revenge or, a, you know, to, to give out about your ex or whatever. You know, you want to, um, you, but you can take something that is, interesting that has happened to you and try to analyze why um you know when i wrote a couple of years back i wrote a novel a history of loneliness about this child abuse scandals in the church in ireland and while i was on the promotional campaign for that you know i i talked about things that had happened to me as a kid uh, growing up in that environment and it's the same sort of thing you know you're taking something from your real life and finding a way to examine it and explore your own reaction to it and how it has affected your life you mentioned the true story that in ways inspired this book. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a small moment in its way, but it was, I, I guess, over these 20 years, I've, I have seen the way a per- people can attach themselves to others at times, um, sometimes not always for the most honourable of reasons. And I went through a bit of an experience like that myself a few years back where I suppose I was in the Eric role <laughs> and somebody was in the Mara Swift role. And... It, it isn't based on that in any way, but it, it was more sort of, I came away from that experience feeling that maybe both of us had been dishonest in our relationship to each other. One person using a, you know, kind of a mid-career novelist to get introductions to this person or that person. And there was also the question of, well, what was I doing at that moment? Why was I sort of seduced and flattered by somebody's attentions? So I kind of used that idea to to begin this this novel. And in a way, I was probably more interested in Eric at the start about why would somebody who was ostensibly, you know, doing okay with their lives, why would why do they need to be flattered? Why do we need to be have our ego stroked all the time? And uh, why is it so easy for somebody to come in and do that? So I was asking that of myself. But using that experience really as the basis for it. And towards the end, Morris is always chasing fame and he's always very excited. I mean, I love I laughed basically every single time there was a reference to the prize, capital T, capital P, <laughs> which is never named, but we all know which one it is. Um, and how he's sort of simultaneously obsessed with it, but also yes. very keen to appear as if he's not bothered yes. by the idea of it, which I think is something that is definitely something I've seen in some authors, including some authors that have actually won it. The prize. Oh, what I always love, what I always love, is when people who are on the Booker long list or short list um, say they weren't even aware that the list was coming out. That <laughs> Liars! And, and I, yeah, I just go, give me a break. <laughs> Also, you know, the people who say they don't read the reviews. Yeah. I don't buy it. They definitely all read the reviews. (laughs) Well, you also can't, in a way, in this day and age with the internet and everything, one way or another, you're going to get a sense of things like reviews. You're going to to know. It's not like you have to go out and buy the newspaper. It's going to be online, you know, so you're going to to find out. I remember John Banville, I, I love this line, he says, you know, if you get a bad review in the newspaper, you can rely on your best friend to phone you up and make sure you've seen it. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the truth. You know, if I get a bad review, you know, I'll get out of bed and somebody will text and say, I'm so sorry about that in 
such and such a paper and you and go you, oh god what you have to it? go yeah. read it then don't yeah. you <laughs> but you kind of have to then you know nobody ever texts and says hey well done on that review i mean and, and so much of this book is about the the pretensions of the literary world so there's a particular very fateful run-in in the hay festival green room i think at one point and then uh there is also morris at one point is in charge of a literary magazine and sort of going through all the submissions mm-hmm. and observing the interns that are really only there to try and get their stories in there as well and this sort of thing it strikes me though that you don't really seem you said before that you're, you're not really you don't view the literary world and its pretensions as a negative thing or something to not engage with or avoid I mean it's yeah, probably I mean, hard I not to you know I've spent my life in it so I, I do like it very much and admire it and respect it I don't think it's any different to any other industry that you're going to find the odd person along the way who is a pain, you know, <laughs> uh, or is just, you know, doesn't behave as you would hope that they would behave. That's It's no different than anything else. Um, I certainly never mean, meant this to be a, a negative view of it because there are a lot of people in the book who, at the start, for example, Eric, who has lived a life, um, published six novels that haven't really found readers, but actually has been rediscovered in later life. Somebody like Edith, who's Maris's wife in the second part of the book, has been discovered early on as a very talented, young, new writer. You know, there are people who are treated very well by the industry. I think Morris has this chip on his shoulder a lot of the way through it because he feels he isn't being treated well by it. But it still comes back to the fact but you're not a very good writer. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> you know, what What does he want? He wants all the the glory of it without actually having achieved. Yeah, I mean, there's the um, the references to his second novel, The Treehouse, which is constantly referred to as the sort of difficult second novel, yeah. but it's the one that strikes you as maybe possibly the one that is most genuinely it, It's the only novel. book he writes which is completely written by himself, I think. You know, it's that nobody has given him any ideas. Nobody has, He's had to just write it himself, and it's been mediocre. Mm. And uh, it has not uh, succeeded because of that mediocrity. And his career has taken a dip. Uh, but, of course, that's not always the case. You know, mediocrity rises to the top all the time yeah I mean it's the thing that I love that it, it is always brought up as sort of the one that people say they liked most if they're sort of trying to appear a little bit oh yeah you yeah. know well read yeah <laughs> I think probably every writer probably has a book in their their canon that if someone says they really like that one the best you go really you did you know because you just know yourself maybe it's it's the one that would be at the bottom of your own list yeah but it, then it's also nice you know if, if somebody says it about that one about that one because it doesn't get as much love so <laughs> I mean so much of this book feels like a thriller and it's so utterly compelling you just kind of even if you hate Morris you kind of want to see what he does yeah. Next. <laughs> well, I was thinking a lot about things like, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley. Mm. Uh, and He's even, very Ripley. And yes. even Hannibal Lecter. Mm. You know, those kind of sort of anti-heroes that y- you're kind of with them all the way. You just want to see how bad they're going to get. You yeah. Know, what, he, what can he possibly do next? And uh, even though you may not want to be friends with him in real life, you're kind of, at least I hope if I've done it right, that the reader kind of falls from in the way that you know everybody else falls from in the book because Morris keeps effectively seducing people one mm. way or another and I hope he kind of seduces the reader in that same way well it's funny that he doesn't really seem to have many obvious weaknesses in perhaps perhaps maybe his ego but he's utterly amoral so he really mm. just does whatever he wants and says whatever he wants he's also very clever 
very good looking. This is a fatal combination. And also... I've suffered from it my whole life. <laughs> and also, uh, you could probably describe him as asexual, which also... Totally asexual. ...frees him up from being seduced himself. Yeah, and, and that was the decision I made early on because I knew, I, I knew he was going to be very uh, attractive to everybody else, but that sex would play no role in his life at all, that he's just... He's just not interested. He's not into men. He's not into women. He'll he'll be with either if he has to be, but it's it's just not a driving force in his life at all. So this is not somebody. This is not a young man who says, you know, if you know, if I'm a good-looking, famous writer, I'll get all the girls or something. This is not his motivation. So I, I, I just decided that early on to keep him completely asexual. I mean, in the title of the book, A Ladder to the Sky, is a reference to a proverb about ambition. But it struck me as well, just based on how the book is structured, we sort of end up with Morris very late in his life, considering what his legacy might be. And he's actually part of that last, the last part of this book is his interviews with a young student who's almost in a Morris role, in a way, interviewing him for his thesis. Is this a book that you felt like you perhaps had to wait a little while to write in a way to sort of sort your ideas out about legacy oh, yeah. and your own legacy well not, not so much legacy but I couldn't uh, you know of if you include all my children's books it's my 16th novel mm. so I couldn't have written it early on because I'd need to really understand what I'm writing about really understand the industry that I'm talking about and the people I'm talking about I think I'm a little young yet to be worrying about my legacy. You've know, <laughs> you got a few I, more books in you. <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope I have another sort of 40, 40 years or so. So I, have, I don't really think about that too much, other than the fact I know that when I die, it'll say, you know, the author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas died, regardless of what I've done <laughs> between now and then. It's not going to make any difference. But that's okay. And, but yeah, no, I think uh, I'm not really worrying about that so much yet. I mean, have you had any other writers read it and respond to it and the truths yeah, that they found in you know, it? I've, I've had some good responses from uh, writers so far. I found a couple, maybe a couple of the younger writers are a little bit more negative about it, you know, just <laughs> because I am kind of calling out the pretensions a little bit. Mm. And but, you know, I don't think in a cruel way. I'm sort of, sort of it's a satire. I'm sort of teasing a little yeah. bit. It's just a bit of fun. But some people take it all so seriously, mm. you know, and. There are things, you know, you've seen over the years that will just make you laugh. Um, I don't include it in the book, but like, for example, I, I, a pers- I know of a person who has 20-20 vision, has no problems with his eyesight. But when he gives readings, will, um, as he stands up at the lectern at a festival, will put on a pair of glasses oh, no. that are actually see-through <laughs> and take them off when he's finished reading. And it's things like that. And, you know, and you, when you, you know, and there's hundreds of those kind of stories that you could tell. And those kind of things, you, yeah. can, you just, like, nobody's murdered anybody, you know, it's, it's not a life and death here, <laughs> but it's just, you know, funny. And you think, you know, why do you need that level of pretension? Mm. Why can't we just let the, the books speak for themselves in that way that you, you don't have to pretend to be somebody that you're not? You know, you just let your stories, let your sentences, let your, your novels be themselves. Sean Kane was speaking with John Boyne. A Ladder to the Sky is out now, published by Doubleday. Next week, we go exploring. Simon Reeve takes us step-by-step through some of his journeys to the far corners of the earth, and Neil McGregor helps make sense of the world with his next coffee table must-have, Living with the Gods, on Beliefs and Peoples. In the meantime, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast's page. As always, if you prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast at theguardian.com. 
But for now, from me, Claire Armitstead, and my producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.